Yo, yo, yo. Thanks for listening to NeuroHive. I'm going to be really honest and upfront with you about something. We took a really big risk putting this information out for you and creating this content. I need your support to help beat the big tech and media overlords who just want to keep you addicted to complacency. They are making billions of dollars and ripping the United States apart all for the sake of keeping us dumb and numb in the place of our phones. I know a lot of you are business owners and entrepreneurs and self-driven individuals who listen to this. You are what they fear the most. Self-reliant, independent thinkers and individuals who are willing to put in the work that is required of success. To help our cause in creating impactful and transparent content to help American business owners, I need your support for the show. If I taught you something, if we gave you new insight into something that you hadn't thought about before, or even just made you smile a little bit today, please share the show. That's how we're going to grow the hive into the greatest force for good that exists out there in the world today. It doesn't have to be a social media share or story post, but many of you do that and it's greatly appreciated. But what it can be is the next time you're hanging out with your buddies, having a conversation with other business owners, and it comes up of what are you stuffing your brain with? What's the good stuff that you're putting between your ears? I would greatly appreciate a mention of NeuroHive. We do a good job for you. I really would love that in return. Let's fire up B and hop into today's episode. KB, active the hive. If you've been thinking about how to step up your game and you know that marketing is the biggest hurdle inside of your business, like I know a lot of it is, it's hard, man. There's a lot of moving pieces, getting your website, your landing pages, your copy, your ads, your creative, the pixels, the coding, it just goes on and on and on. And you need to be focused on building your dreams, not focused on all these small little pieces. So if you need help with some of your marketing, you need to go to the Fixture Marketing community inside of Facebook. It's a bright blue background with a cartoon image of me planting a flag on top of a mountain and it says Fixture Marketing. It's free to join. There's no obligation and you can come in and get help where, no matter where you're at inside of your marketing game. Whether you're an expert or you're just someone starting out that's looking to build their business online, it's a great place and a great community for you to come and get some help. Nir, what's going on, man? Welcome to the show. Super happy to have you here. Thanks, Alex. Great to be here. Yeah, this has been a uh, this has been a long time coming. I know there's been a lot of mutual acquaintances of ours that have gotten us connected. And it's been super awesome to get to see your journey, both from uh, no pun intended, but near and afar. Exactly, just like my website. That's my website URL, nearandfar.com. So <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. You've uh, you've taken a deep dive and a different approach into psychology than what I ever see most most uh, authors or most. Uh, influencers ever get into? Whatever got you into that? How did you start to move down this path? Yeah, so I've, I've been interested in the psychology of user behavior pretty much for as long as I can remember <laughs> because I used to be clinically obese uh, starting from childhood. And I remember the power that uh, food seemed to have over me. And I remember becoming fascinated with the marketing techniques and tricks that food companies use to uh, change my behavior. And I remember thinking, uh, how powerful that was over me. Thankfully, I I managed to overcome my obesity today. I'm 43 years old. I'm in the best shape of my life. But I think it it inspired me to understand how to change user behavior so that it's not just the big marketers and the big tech companies that can influence our behavior, but 
what if we could learn these tactics ourselves to improve our own habits? And so I credit my current life, uh, you know, specifically around this last book I wrote called Indistractable, where for the first time in my life, you know, after five years of research, I have really cracked the code for myself on how to do whatever it is I say I'm going to do in life. Uh, whether that's staying focused at work, whether that's exercising when I say I will, eating right when I say I will, being with fully present with my family when I say I will. You know, there's no area of your life that, that's not affected by your ability to follow through. And I think that's what's missing today for many people in their lives. You know, many smart people out there know exactly what to do. They just don't do it. And that's really what I wanted to embark on with my latest book, Indistractable. So with that, do you think it's because we are so we're so addicted to the external motivators versus intrinsic ones. I know we're kind of getting into some weird and deep topics right out of the gate, but mm-hmm. I know my audience is really going to enjoy if we kind of go down more of this psychological rabbit hole. Yeah. So, so addiction is a, is a weird term and we have to be very careful about that term uh, because, you know, using it inappropriately really does hurt us and hurt people who are actually addicted. So we like to throw away this term on top of everything that we like a lot, but the vast majority of people are not addicted. We are simply distracted. Uh, there's a big difference, right? An addiction is a persistent compulsive dependency on a behavior or substance that harms some people. Uh, but the vast majority of us, we're not addicted, right? We are simply distracted. We do things that are counter to what we intend. You know, an addiction is a pathology. It's like saying epilepsy or Tourette's. Right. These are compulsive urges, but we don't go around saying, oh, I just, you know, I have a Tourette's personality <laughs> right? or I'm, I'm liable to, uh, to have an epileptic fit if you're not an epileptic. And so we shouldn't toss around this, this term addiction. What we really mean is distraction, that when we say we are addicted to social media, the vast majority of us are not addicted. We are distracted by social media or distracted by television or distracted by a million other things out there. And the reason I'm such a stickler about this term is because it's very disempowering. That when you tell people uh, they're addicted to something, they believe there's nothing they can do because an addiction is this uh, compulsive dependency. Because it is a pathology, we medicalize and moralize behavior that we could actually control. So the first thing I want people to realize out there is that you have way more power than you think. That even when it comes to addictions, we know that the number one determinant of whether an alcoholic will... Uh, will will stay sober after treatment is not their level of physical dependency, but rather it is their belief in their own power to change. So the first step to living the kind of life you want and doing the things that you know you should every day, but somehow don't seem to actually do is to believe in your own power to do something. That's what becoming indistractable is all about. An indistractable person lives with personal integrity, right? Most of us uh, we would hate to be called liars, right? The vast majority of us, it's a, it, most people are, are honest. Most people wouldn't lie to their children, wouldn't lie to their spouse, wouldn't lie to their colleagues. And yet they lie to themselves every day, right? They say they're going to work out. Nah, they say they're going to do that big project. Not so much, right? We lie to ourselves every single day. I know I certainly did. And so the goal of becoming indistractable is to be as honest with yourself as you are with other people, to live with personal integrity. Wouldn't you say that's where a lot of self or, uh, self-confidence comes from or the micro-promises like that that we keep to ourselves? I mean, th- this, is, this is really where the difference between uh, what, what is distraction really, really matters. And so let, let, let's actually take a step back and, and sure. talk about what is distraction. It's one of those terms that I think a lot of people think they understand. I thought I understood, but I, I really didn't. 
that I thought I understood the word. And a, a good way to test yourself on whether you know something is to ask yourself whether you know the opposite of that thing. Do you know the antonym? So if you ask most people, what is the opposite of distraction? They'll tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, right? Of course, the opposite of distraction is focus, but that's not true. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction, if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction. So uh, if you look at the Latin origin of both words, they both come from the same Latin root, which means, uh, which comes from trahare, which means to pull. Mm -hmm. And uh, so traction is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you towards your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. You'll also notice that both traction and distraction end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction is anything that moves you towards your values, towards your goals, helps you become the kind of person you know you can become. The opposite of traction is distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from your goals, further away from what you intended to do, further away from your values, and further away from becoming the kind of person you know you can become. And this is super important for two reasons. Number one, anything can be a distraction. So if you sit down at your desk and you say to yourself, okay, I've got that big project I have to work on today. I'm not going to get distracted. I'm not going to procrastinate. But first, let me just check some email, right? If you are now suddenly checking email, even though that's a work-related task, if that is not what you intended to do with your time, you are distracted. This is what we call pseudo work. And people are drowning in this pseudo work. They trick themselves into thinking, well, I got to do email at some point. I got I, you know, to read the news at some point. I got to check those Slack channels at some point. And they don't realize that distraction has tricked them into prioritizing the easy stuff and the urgent stuff as opposed to the important and hard work that we have to do to move ourselves forward in life. So anything can be a distraction. Even the work stuff can be a distraction. And conversely, anything can be traction. So these days, you hear a lot of these chicken little tech critics telling you that technology is taking over your brain, that it's hijacking your mind, that it's addictive. BS. It is not true. It's exactly what the tech companies want you to believe. They want you to believe that it's addictive, that you can't stop. It's not true. That anything you want to do on your schedule and according to your values is fine. You want to play video games all day? No problem. As long as that's what you do with intent. The difference between traction and distraction is forethought. So if you plan to do it, great. There's nothing wrong with it. As long as that's done with intent in advance that you decide you want to do that according to your schedule and your values, not somebody else's. So now we have the difference between traction and distraction. Now we have to ask ourselves, well, what prompts us to take these actions? We have external triggers and internal triggers. External triggers are about 10% of the reason you get distracted, but it tends to be 100% of the reason that people think they get distracted. So I'm talking about the pings, the dings, the rings. People think that's what causes distraction. It only causes 10% of the distraction. 90% of the distraction, 90, 90% of the distractions come from what we call internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Boredom, loneliness, anxiety, fatigue, uncertainty, stress. These are the internal triggers that we seek to escape from. And so the first step to becoming indistractable is mastering those internal triggers. I teach you step-by-step step what to do with your discomfort. Because here's the thing. 
If you don't deal with that discomfort, if you don't know what to do when you feel bored, anxious, lonely, uncertain, stressed, you will always find a distraction. Whether it's too much football, too much Facebook, too much booze, too much news, you're going to find an escape unless you know how to deal with your uncomfortable emotional state. Because time management is pain management. Time management is pain management. So you have to learn that skill first or no other technique will work for you. Then after you've mastered the internal triggers, we make time for traction, hack back the external triggers and prevent distraction with packs. So we basically work through the four points of this compass. This is how anybody, I promise you, take an hour and a half with my book. I promise you anyone out there, unless you're struggling with a pathology, you will become indistractable. I love it. I would... I would love for you to go into the difference between a trigger and something that's internally motivating or externally motivating, because I feel like that's where a lot of this starts to get tricky, right? Is where we start to kind of slice and dice terms. Um, and just to kind of give you a little bit as to where I, I kind of view this, I view things like external motivators, like money, fame, sex, food, clothing, shelter, right? They're very surface level. They never really get us what they, what we want. But yet at the end of the day, it's what we see a lot of people advertise and market to us with on you know any platform. It doesn't matter whether it's social or digital or TV or radio or print. They've all used all those external motivators to really try to grab a hold of us. But what I've noticed, and as I was listening, I really noticed that the internal motivators are the complete flip side of what you were just talking about, things like curiosity, passion, purpose, mastery, the idea of autonomy, that we have the ability to grasp our reality and really take it for a ride for the short time we're here on earth. From what you were talking about as far as those internal triggers that tend to bring us back to a uncomfortable emotional state, how do you start to kind of sparse the two separately? So I think you're confusing a little bit extrinsic motivators and intrinsic motivators with external triggers and internal triggers. It's actually a different, uh, they're, they're different things. Uh, triggers are prompts to action. Uh, intrinsic or extrinsic motivation is about desire and, and, and wanting and craving and motivation. So it's about why we do it versus the prompt to action. So intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, this comes from self-determination theory, and it's about you know, why we do the things we do. But triggers are about the prompts that tell us what to do. Mm. So in, when it comes to distraction, it's really about understanding which external triggers serve us versus which are we serving, right? How many people complain about how distracted they are? But when you take a look at their notifications on their phone, they're constantly pinged and dinged from any, uh, anybody who wants their attention. Well, God damn it, take five minutes and change your notification settings. What's Mark Zuckerberg going to do to turn them back on? Nothing. So right. stop complaining that you're addicted when you haven't even taken five minutes to change your notification settings, right? This is basic stuff, people. So there's, of course, the steps that we can take for our phones. There are also other external uh, triggers that we don't consider. You know, many of us are working from home. So our kids become external triggers towards distraction. How many of us sit in stupid meetings that don't need to be called? Those are external triggers that can distract us from what we really need to do with our time. So there's all kinds of external triggers that we can hack back and make sure serve us as opposed to us serving them. Then the internal triggers, this is, this is more difficult, right? This requires more work. People love the, the life hacks and the simple things they can do on their phones and the new technologies they can use. But the real work starts with figuring out in yourself what discomfort you are escaping, okay? Mm -hmm. A lot of people have a misconception about motivation, that many people think uh, that motivation is about carrots and sticks, right? It's about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. That's not true. 
Okay. This is an outdated view of motivation. It's not about carrots and sticks, but let me, let me give you a, a moment from the matrix here. Have you watched the matrix? Absolutely. Okay. So you know that scene where Neo looks at the spoon and he realizes there is no spoon. Yeah. Right. I'm, I'm going to give you that moment right now. So, you know, when it comes to carrots and sticks, yep. the carrot is the stick. What do I mean by that? The carrot is the stick. There is no such thing as a pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. It's all the avoidance of pain. Even the desire to feel good, wanting, craving, desire, lusting, all of these things that we think of as the pursuit of pleasure, they themselves are psychologically destabilizing. Everything you do, you do for only one reason, the desire to escape discomfort, even the pursuit of pleasurable sensations. The carrot is the stick. So what that means is if all human motivation is about a desire to escape discomfort, that means that you can get anything you want in life. You can do anything that is possible within the realm of the laws of physics if you can master your discomfort. Do you think the elite, a lot of elite performers have figured this out and they just understand this principle a lot deeper than others, whether they have the intellectual conversational tools to express this or not, or if it's something that's more internal to them that they just kind of understand, hey, the longer I stay in this state of uncomfortability as I'm moving towards my goals, the longer I can get and I can pull more out of that situation. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, your ability to deal with discomfort, whether that's psychological uh, or physiological discomfort, is a huge factor in your ability to persist, right? What, what keeps an athlete going, suffering through uh, the, the pain? Let me, let me tell you, you know, even, I should say not only even, especially athletes, you know, it hurts when you're pushing yourself to the limits. It's, it's painful. Your body is screaming at you to stop. But it's about how you deal with that discomfort that keeps you going. And we know that the seminal trait of people who achieve what they want to achieve in life is their ability to not quit. If you quit, you will not achieve whatever it is you strive for. And this is what most people do with most things in their life, right? Oh, I did that quick keto diet for like two weeks and then I quit. Oh, I started writing my book and then I quit. Oh yeah, I enrolled in college and then I dropped out. Oh, I started along this, uh, I really wanted that new job, but then it was hard, so I stopped, right? You know, I, oh, my new year's resolution was to lose 20 pounds and I did it for a month and then I quit. It's not that we don't know what to do. We all know what to do. That what we have to do is keep doing it. And the reason we don't keep doing it is because we get distracted. That's why becoming indistractable is the skill of the century. It is the most important macro skill. If whatever area of your life you feel like you're not doing enough of, you're not reading enough books, you're not exercising enough, you're not spending enough time with your kids, you're not spending enough time focused at work, this is why. Because you're not indistractable yet. The good news is everyone can become indistractable. What do you think about these people that reinforce time audits and recommending, because I've seen it across the internet, just document every 15 minutes of your day for a week and figure out how much extra time you actually have buried inside of your calendar. Do you find those types of exercises effective or are those in and of themselves pulling you away from the activities that are putting you into these flow states originally? Yeah, it's a good point. A lot of times I, I uh, meet people who spend way too much time on what I call productivity porn. 
right? Like the latest, <laughs> I the latest, greatest, I oh, we need it. this technique, this hack, this app, this trick, this, uh, this technique. And uh, a lot of it can be a complete waste of time. And, and more so, uh, it becomes a distraction in and of itself. You're absolutely right. Now, this specific technique of a time audit, it, I don't like it when it's done retroactively. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's very useful to do it retroactively, meaning you know, track all your time and then look back on it. What I want people to do instead is to make a schedule for the future that they want to follow. So this uses a technique called time boxing. Uh, psychologists call it making an implementation intention. And it has been shown in literally thousands of studies to be one of the most effective things you can do to follow through on your goals is to simply plan your day. And I mean, down to the minute. People out there, you know, we know this is an effective technique. And let me tell you, all kinds of people right now are listening to this and say, oh, you want me to plan down in a minute? That's so boring. That's so regimented. I can't do that. I need to be impulsive. Shut up and listen. This technique works. You know it works. We need to plan our day. And I resisted this technique for years until I found the life-changing power of simply planning how you want to spend your time. Why is this so important? Because... You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Mm. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So don't complain that you got distracted if you can't look at your calendar and tell me what you got distracted from. So if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you, right? Your boss, your kids, the news media, whatever's going on on Twitter, somebody is, has an incentive to take your time and attention. Why? Because time is money. Literally, we use the same language to talk about time as we do with money, right? We pay with dollars and cents, just like we pay attention. We spend time, just like we spend money. We save time. We make time, just like we save and make money, right? We literally use the same language to describe time, money, and attention. They're the same thing. And you wouldn't stand on the street corner saying, hey, who wants my money? Here's 100. Here's a 20. Here's a 50. Just take as much as you want. Why do we do this with our time? We do this because we think we want freedom. We think we want spontaneity, but that's a jail sentence. That in fact, without constraint, without deciding in advance how you want to spend your time, you will look back at your life in regret, wondering why you didn't do what you knew you were capable of doing. Do you think that's because a lot of us view this as an infinite game when really it truly is finite? Like we, we don't have a life bank account. I've been fortunate enough to have a near-death experience where I was knocked out for over two and a half minutes to where I wasn't technically alive. So I've seen that clock kind of firsthand. And I think that really, it's not a think, I 100% know it shifted my identity. Hmm. It shifted who I was and how I perceived my reality around us to the ability and to the extent that where I, I even got a new like taste bud. And I even hmm. found like different experiences that I never found pleasurable or enjoyable before extra pleasurable and enjoyable afterwards. And I truly believe a lot of it comes down to the fact that I'm I'm now aware of that kind of quote unquote time bank account that uh, no no matter what I do, I can never deposit more into it. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many people uh, just kind of drift through life, letting life happen to them. And then they wake up and complain about, oh, how much time they wasted. You know, I, I hear this all the time when people say how, how uh, they just don't have enough time in the day. They're working so hard. They can't find time to do what they really want to do. They find that they're so distracted. You know, the average American 
right now, the year 2021, we know the average American spends five hours a day watching television. Oh, I fully believe five hours that. a day. What I, the I, hell? <laughs> I fully believe it. The time is there. The well, time get, is there. Getting back to your idea of hooked, right? Like we're hooked on the behavior of, or the internal behavior and internal triggers of, I get home, I put my keys on the hook, I throw my phone on the couch and down I plop. And now I'm distracted and in this state of repetition and habitual pattern, right? We, need, we almost need that ability. James Clear talks about it in his book, Atomic Habits. Like if you want to stop watching TV, unplug the TV every time you're done because now you're starting to break the habit of every time you want to watch TV, plug it back in. Right. And, and we do these things, you know, like you said, with little or no conscious thought, we just, you know, Oh, I have to watch the game. I have to watch Netflix. I have to be on social media. I have to do. No, these are just feelings. These are just the desire to escape discomfort. You don't have to do this. You have to figure out why you're doing it in the first place. So whether it's, you know, the, the drinking too much to escape our discomfort or watching too much TV to escape our discomfort or, or going on social media too much to escape discomfort, we have to understand what are we escaping? And typically what we're escaping is simple stuff like boredom, right? Mm -hmm. Uncertainty, stress, fatigue. The thing is the self-help industry has told us a lie. And that lie is that feeling bad is bad, mm -hmm. right? How many books have happiness in the title and promise to like, you know, set how to make your, you happy. Well, the goal shouldn't be to be happy. The default human state is not bliss. That doesn't make any sense. We want our species to be uncomfortable. That's what keeps us striving. It's our, it's our disquietude that makes us create and invent. That's, that, that discomfort is what keeps us going forward. So it's not about escaping that discomfort with distraction. It's about harnessing that discomfort and using it as rocket fuel towards traction. I 100% agree. What I think is an interesting topic that you kind of hit on is this idea that our body and our mind wants to play and explore, right? It's one of the seven main motivators that we use throughout our life, right? We have other ones like fear, anger, and rage, grief, lust. We have caring and nurturing, but we also have social engagement slash play, and we have a seeking and desire behavior. And from reading a lot of your work comes back to that seeking and desiring behavior. But what's so interesting to me is that at some point along the way, we lose that social engagement and play. But what it comes so naturally to us as kids, and we have these fun activities that we do. And we, we used to think of it as a learning and conditioning experience. But now it, we're, through the research that we're seeing, it's teaching us a lot about morality. And it's teaching us a lot about our own internal ethics. Like, hey, like might doesn't always equal right. And don't pick on the ones that are smaller than you, right? And when we play, we release all these amazing neurochemicals that induce flow states for us. And when I look around and when I see people, and I, I have to admit, I was that person too. Like before my experience, I was somebody that had lost that sense of play. Even like when I was learning guitar and I've been playing for almost 13 years now, it felt like it was still just motions, right? That I'd never really gotten into the state of play. What are your thoughts on the fact of... Or do you even think that a lot of us are lacking that sensation around us? Or do you think that it's just something that we're meant to grow out of? Yeah. So I actually talk about this in the book around how we can actually use play to help us um, minimize the discomfort of doing things we don't really want to do. 
Mm. that when we know we have to go exercise or do our taxes or work on that big project or whatever it is, we don't really feel like doing it. Let's recognize that's why we fundamentally don't do most of the things we know we should do is because we don't feel like it, right? I don't Mm. feel like going to exercise. I don't feel like working on that big project. I don't feel like studying right now. It's feelings. Fundamentally, it's feelings. Well, so how can we minimize the discomfort of doing something we don't really feel like doing? Turns out we can learn to play anything. And so I cite the work of Dr. Ian Bogos, who, uh, who, who did quite a bit of research on this. And he says something pretty controversial. He says, fun doesn't have to be enjoyable. What? That doesn't make any sense. How does something uh, yeah, have to let's, be fun? Let's take a second with that. Yeah, take a second with that. Something doesn't have to be fun. And something fun doesn't necessarily have to be enjoyable. It doesn't necessarily have to be pleasurable. It just has to refocus our attention. Mm. That's the goal. And it turns out that you can actually add some, add play, add fun to something by in two ways. Number one, we focus on it more intensely. We look for the variability inside that, that behavior. These are the two things we do. We look more intensely and we find the variability. And so that's how we, we don't add a spoonful of sugar, right? Back to the extrinsic motivation we talked about earlier. That's actually a bad idea. A spoonful of sugar technique is only good for things you have to do once. And we find that instead, if you add the spoonful of sugar of rewards and you know these, these extrinsic motivators, that that fades very, very quickly and it becomes all about the reward and none about the pleasure itself of doing the task, the intrinsic motivator. But what you can actually learn to do by focusing more intently on the task, by looking at the beauty of the task, even if it is doing your taxes and you hate doing your taxes or exercise, whatever the case might be, you look at it more intensely, you get more into it, and you find the variability, right? Variability is what makes slot machines interesting. And what, it's what makes sports fun to watch. And it's what makes your newsfeed scrollable. We want to find the variability or add some of the variability. So if you can add those constraints of you know, uh, find, you know, exploring the behavior more intently and adding the variability, this is how we can add play to a task without the bar of, oh, it needs to be fun. Rather, it just needs to capture our attention long enough to help us persist through the task. Absolutely, man. That gets into, and it makes total sense because we understand that dopamine and aka our our desire or reward principle or neurochemical that's really at work there isn't necessarily on the reward itself, but the pursuit of the reward we anticipate that's coming, right? We don't get a massive dopamine dump when it's done. We get it throughout the process. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole dopamine, it, you know, the, it tends to be overplayed, the whole dopamine sure. spikes and all that stuff. Sure. And, you know, dopamine is not cocaine. <laughs> it doesn't No, yeah, ab- a- absolutely. And what's, what's incredible about play is that it releases so many, right? We have things like dopamine, norepinephrine, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphin, and andamides. We have so many of these amazing neurochemicals that make up to the entire experience. And what I've found personally is that if you're not actively seeking those environments of play, I lose my flow state ability. It's harder for me to dip into states of flow to be able to really optimize my performance, whether that be personally or even have the emotional space for other people around me. I feel like without those opportunities or creating that time in my schedule to allow for play, whether it be playing guitar or going outside for a run, whatever that is, what I consider playful and enjoyment, I, I seem to miss a lot of those flow state opportunities because that time isn't part of my discipline anymore. 
Yeah. Yeah. So knowing how to add those, I think is very important, but also I would advise, you know, flow is a tricky concept. I'm a big fan of, of the work of, uh, Mihai, 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 yeah. uh, and his flow state work. The only problem that I have with the flow state research is it's kind of like, um, being a Hollywood celebrity, right? Nice work if you can get it. Mm. So when, when Csikszentmihalyi talks about flow, he talks about it in the context of athletes doing stuff they love to do, right? Artists doing stuff they love to do. Okay. Like it's really easy to get into flow state when you're surfing. How do you get into flow state when you're doing your taxes? If you hate doing your taxes, how do you get into flow state? Oh, I'll give you a great example. Writing. Okay. I've written two bestsellers, thousands of articles. I'm syndicated in the New York Times, the Atlantic, Harvard Business Review. Writing is never going to be a habit or flow. It's not. Why? Because the definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. Who can write without conscious thought? It doesn't work that way. And I think the problem is that when people expect everything to be a habit, what they really are saying is, I want this hard thing to be easy. And I think this is why we've reached peak habits. Because not everything can be a habit. We have to stop telling people that everything can be flow and everything can be habits. No, you know what? Sometimes certain behaviors are going to be hard. And that's okay. Not everything has to be flow and habits. And, and so by trying to run away from discomfort as opposed to leaning into the discomfort, learning to deal with the discomfort, this is how we can persist through difficult tasks. There's always more beneficial reward that I've found on the other side of that as well. Yeah, that's true too. Right. And I, I a hundred percent agree. And it's, it's strange because so often it's, it's not what we see the narrative of. It's not, it's not what we see constantly surrounding ourselves with and news media outlets, or even, even these quote unquote gurus that supposedly have the light of the end of the tunnel for each and every one of us. Right. It's just, it's never what's actually out there. And I, I fully agree that flow state is not something that's... It's not meant to be a reoccurring occurrence in the sense of, I don't expect to dip into it every day. Mm-hmm. What I do expect out of myself is the discipline to at least be in the position to receive that state when it happens. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good mentality, right? That, and expecting that, look, certain tasks are good candidates for flow and for habits, and certain behaviors are not. Right, that there's a difference between a habit and a routine. A habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. A routine is a series of behaviors frequently repeated. And so by making sure that we understand, look, some behaviors are never going to become habits, but first they have to become routines. And if we can start changing our behavior to consistently do what it is we see we're going to do, some of those behaviors may become habits, but not all of them, and that's okay. But we can persist through doing those routines. And that's the, that's the important part. It's not because the problem is what happens when we tell people, uh, as some people do that, Oh, everything can become a habit, just make it a habit. And then it's not easy, right? Like some people say, Oh, make working out a habit. Well, you know, a habit is the opposite of practicing something intently, right? When we talk about deliberate practice, we've all heard about the 10,000 hour rule, right? Deliberate practice requires focused attention. You can't get, you can't make playing the violin or sorry, learning the violin, playing the violin. You can, but learning the violin cannot be a habit. It has to be deliberate practice. Why? Because deliberate practice requires a tremendous amount of focus 
concentration on what I'm doing in order to get better at it. Now, eventually it can become a habit if I do it long enough, but the learning process is not the habit. The learning process requires deliberate practice, requires that focusing of attention, requires conscious thought. So I think what we need to do is to clarify that, look, some parts in the process will not be easy. And we need to learn how to cope with that discomfort by not getting distracted. And then eventually, if we're lucky, certain behaviors can become habits, but not always. I like that. And that's a lot of the reason why I find and why I've become quote unquote, um, well, I, I won't even use that term for it. I've, uh, I've found a lot of solace in playing music over the years because I'm constantly having to come back to sucking <laughs> anytime I pick up the guitar, unless I'm running through, unless I'm running through material that I already know by heart and that's already ingrained into my brain, right? I, I can do it reflexively with my eyes closed and I can hit, you know, 15,000 notes in a song and because I play virtuoso style and be just fine. Where when I'm, I'm learning a new piece or I'm, I'm learning something new, I feel that I'm putting myself in that ability to receive those states more and more because I'm constantly pushing myself back down to the bottom of having to learn something. And from people that I've talked to that do you know, mixed martial arts or they do any type of hard endeavor where you're constantly being humbled and pushed back down to the beginning of the learning curve, because all it takes is one small thing to twist that reality around for you. And now you're seeing everything from a new lens. And I think yeah. that's why I find things like guitar or I find things like physical activity so intriguing because it's constantly kind of humbling and putting me back in a state of having to repeat that educational cycle of, look, dude, you are unconsciously incompetent. Like you, you, you just don't know what you don't know about this yet. And for me, that's really liberating. But I know for others, it's really scary and kind of terrifying because there's such a big ego hit that comes along with saying, hey, I'm, I'm allowing myself the grace and the privilege to suck during this time. Totally. Totally. No, absolutely. And I think it's that mind shift of different phases in the learning process. Um, but, but again, back to the point of, of indistractable, knowing that persistence makes all the difference, right? That if you yeah. don't continue to practice... You will never get good at it. Even though you, who doesn't know that if you, hey, if you want to learn how to play the guitar, guess what? You got to practice. <laughs> There's no way around it. Who would have guessed? Right. And then we, despite the fact that we all know that, uh, how many people just don't persist? Not because they don't know, but because they don't know how to get out of their own way. Totally. Nir, this has been super awesome, man. And I would, I would love to do this again in the future. But before we do that, um, I have one more question for you, okay? And this is something I've been asking a lot of a lot of my guests, and I've gotten amazing answers from it. Um, if you had a prayer for the world right now, what would it be? If I had a prayer for the world, it would be to love one another. But let me explain that. Or how do you define love? For me, love is measured by the benefit of the doubt. Love mm -hmm. is measured by the benefit of the doubt. So, um, what do I mean by that? So, think think about babies for a minute, right? Let's admit it. Babies are crazy annoying. They cry, they poop, they constantly need to be fed. They're pretty annoying. And yet we give them tons of benefit of the doubt. Why? Because they're babies, right? <laughs> they're babies. They don't have the, they don't mean to annoy us. That's what they, they do. They're just not capable of, of anything but what they do. So, but we give them lots of benefit of the doubt, lots of love to babies because of that principle. We give them the benefit of the doubt that they're not intending to cause us discomfort. 
But when babies grow up, for some reason, we give them no benefit of the doubt. That we assume intent. Somebody mm. says something a little bit off and we assume they said it to hurt us. And so that's why I say love is measured by the benefit of the doubt. That the more benefit of the doubt we give people, the more we love them. And so my prayer for the world would be to give each other more benefit of the doubt. That not we shouldn't assume that people have negative intent, quite the opposite. Let's assume that people have positive intent. I love it. Nir, where can people find out more about your work or how can they get connected to you? Yeah, thanks. My blog is called nearandfar.com. I publish new stuff every week about this topic of distraction and technology and business. So I'm uh, anything in this topic is uh, is fair game on my blog, nearandfar.com. Near, spell like my first name, N-I-R and far.com. And my book is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for being here today. I know my audience got a lot out of it. I definitely got a lot out of it. And this is one I want to go back and watch through multiple times because I know I missed a ton even as we were going through this conversation today. So I just want to personally thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. A lot of fun. Take care. Yeah, thanks, Nir. 